Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Please turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Let me hear those pages, or at least those clicks. Either way. As you're turning, I want to remind you of our Love Franklin campaign, where we hope to raise at least $5,000. This is a fundraiser for us to bless Franklin Elementary School, funds which will be used there for emergency needs, such as clothes, food, hygiene supplies, etc. In short, just anything that, any need that teachers or administration see that a kid has, and they don't have themselves the resources to meet those needs, but because we gave there's an opportunity to meet those needs. And so, um, again, you have instructions in uh, the, the slides and the announcements on how to give. Um, we'll be doing this through the, the first Sunday in October. You can make the check out to First Baptist Church and put Franklin in the memo portion of the check, or you can use the drop-down menu on the online giving where it says Franklin. How many of you like fine art? Where are my fine art people? Raise your hand. I see some hands. Um, this right here is a picture of the Art Institute in Chicago. Have you been there ever? Cool place. Um, I had an intro to fine art class in college. I went to college not too far from Chicago, and I enjoyed the field trip, but sadly, I slept through much of the class. And... Um, Anyway, all that being said, we're going to begin the sermon today with some fine art, specifically this painting, which is known as the Transfiguration by the artist Raphael, not the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle Raphael, but the artist Raphael who lived from 1483 to 1520. And interestingly, from the late 16th century until the early 20th century, um, there were people who said that this is the most famous oil painting in all of the world, which is a big statement, isn't it? That's uh, some distinction for the transfiguration. Now, if we zoom in to the top half of the painting, this is what we see. We see the things that happened in last week's text. We see the glory of Jesus being unveiled, and he's flanked by Elijah and by Moses. And then there, there, there are the disciples on the ground taking it all in and witnessing it. But then... As we zoom to the bottom half of the painting, we see something different, totally different scene. In, in contrast to the glory of the transfiguration on the top of the mountain, we see a bunch of chaos and strife at the bottom of the mountain. And that is the subject of our text today, the chaos and strife that was taking place at the bottom of the mountain, both during and after the transfiguration. So would you please stand with me as I read the text? It is a lengthy one, but it is a good one. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. It says, And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them, and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. 
And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You bow your heads with me as we do pray. Father, this, this text is all about the significance of prayer and about how much we need you. Not just sometimes, but all the time. And so God, we ask right now through prayer that you would meet with us, that you would speak to us, and that we would listen and obey. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The text breaks down not into nine parts like last week, okay, but only three parts this week, and they don't even all have the same letter. This week it is the failure, the success, and the explanation. The failure, the success, and the explanation. So let's take a look at the first of these, the failure in verses 14 through 19. So back to verse 14 when it says, and when they came to the disciples, who is they? All right, connect it with last week. This is Jesus, Peter, James, and John having come down that Mount of Transfiguration and meeting back up with the other nine disciples. Nine disciples who had been left alone for a time without the presence of Jesus. What could go wrong, right? We'll see in the second half of verse 14. It says, they, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. So here is the scene of chaos and strife that we were talking about earlier. Let's go back to the painting in that bottom half of Raphael's painting. What do you see? You see finger pointing. You see wild gesturing. You see conflict. Something is clearly amiss at the bottom of this mountain. Until it says in verse 15, and immediately... All the crowd, when they saw him, meaning Jesus, they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. It's interesting, isn't it, how the presence of Jesus almost instantaneously changes everything. It kind of reminds me like when, when a teacher walks into a classroom that had been left unattended for a minute, right? Where just minutes before, kids are standing on desks and throwing erasers and doing all... Do they still have erasers? And that kind of shows my age a little bit. But now that, now that the teacher is there, everyone is seated and focused and things are in order. I believe there's a, an important spiritual application here for us right off the bat, and that is this. When Christ is absent, there is chaos. When Christ is present, there is calm. 
Let me say that again. When Christ is absent, there is chaos. When Christ is present, there is calm. This will be true in your personal life. It will be true in your home and family life. It will be true of your work life, your church life. When Christ is absent, there is chaos. When he is present, there is calm. Some of you have put up a hand to Jesus and said, I I want to do it my way. I don't want you involved. And you are experiencing the predicted chaos that I'm speaking of doesn't have to be that way. When Christ is absent, there is chaos. When Christ is present, there is calm. Therefore, church, we must be diligent about inviting Christ into each and every aspect of our lives. We must be diligent about inviting Christ into each and every aspect of our lives. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whenever we are doing it, why? Because when Christ is absent, there is chaos. But when Christ is present, there is calm. Would you rather have calm or chaos? Calm. Well, there was in fact chaos when Jesus came down that Mount of Transfiguration, just as there was chaos way back in the Old Testament in Exodus 32 when Moses came down Mount Sinai. You'll recall that back then Moses had his own special encounter with God on the mountaintop, receiving the Ten Commandments. And then Moses came down the mountain after experiencing God's glory. But when Moses came down that mountain, what did he find? Do you remember the story? Chaos Chaos and strife, just like at the bottom of the Mount Transfiguration. You see, in Moses' brief absence, the Israelites had already forgotten God and decided to worship a golden calf. So again, it's interesting. It's yet another connection between Old Testament Moses and the New Testament Mount of Transfiguration. You You guys know how excited I get when those connections are made. Well, what was all of this chaos about in Mark chapter 9 at the bottom of Mount Transfiguration? We see in verse 16, it says, And he, Jesus, asked them, What what are you, the disciples, arguing about with them, the scribes? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Ooh, clearly a lot has happened in the short time that Jesus went up the Mount of Transfiguration, and none of it was good. We have a desperate father who brought his demonized son to the nine remaining disciples, asking them to bring deliverance to the boy, which was a completely reasonable request. Now, why do I say that? Well, because you'll remember remember back in Mark chapter 3, verses 14 through 15, it says, and Jesus appointed 12 whom he named apostles so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So the apostles were given authorization to operate as Christ's representatives and to do what he did. Specifically, they were authorized and empowered to cast out demons, just like the one that held this boy in bondage. And then in Mark 6, 13, it says, And they, the apostles, cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So these nine disciples who had been left at the bottom of the Mount of Transfiguration, they'd done this before. They've had success in casting out demons until now. For some reason, these nine remaining disciples failed 
In this instance, they were unable to cast this demon out of this boy. And so, as we look again at the bottom half of Raphael's painting, the yellow box there, we see the father with his demonized son. But what's with all the finger pointing and arguing? What is it about? Well, sadly, these are the religious leaders, the scribes. You know what they're doing? They're taunting the disciples, making fun of them for their inability to deliver the demonized boy, saying, aha, we knew it all along. Jesus is a fraud, and now you have proved it. You see, the failure of the disciples, it it certainly reflected badly on themselves, but even more tragically, it reflected badly on Jesus. You know, these same very disciples, remember when they asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And you remember that part of the Lord's prayer that says, hallowed be your name, which means may your name be honored. May your name, Jesus, be held in high esteem. But is that what's happening here? No. Here, the name of Jesus was not at all being honored. It was being mocked. It was being ridiculed. Well, how do you think Jesus felt about all of this? We read in verse 19, Jesus answered them, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. You can just hear the pain in Jesus' voice. That word, oh, it's an expression of emotion. Oh, after all, that Jesus had done after all that Jesus had taught these disciples over the course of two and a half years. Here we are yet again, faithless disciples who failed the test. And that is section number one of our text, the failure in verses 14 through 19. Section number two, thankfully, is the success in verses 20 through 27. Um, Look with me at verse 20. It says, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Earlier, you'll recall, the demon had not in any way been afraid of the nine disciples. Can I just say demons aren't afraid of you by yourself? But when Jesus showed up on the scene, how did the demons respond? The demon respond here. Sheer terror. Why? Because that demon knew that his time was short. And so what he did was seek to inflict as much damage as possible in the short time that he had left. It says he convulsed the boy, he fell on the ground, he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And here is a lesson for us about these times in which we live, in which I don't know when the end end times are, but I know this, we're one day closer than yesterday, one week closer than the week before. Jesus is coming soon. Here's the lesson. As Satan knows that his time is growing short, we can expect for him to intensify his activity to do as much damage as possible in the time he has left. Satan knows that his time is growing short. We can expect for him to intensify his activity, to do as much damage as possible in the time he has left. We get a taste of this back in in Revelation 12.12 where it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. 
With every passing day, as the end draws closer and nearer, we can fully expect for Satan to intensify his activity because he knows his time is short, just like this demon in this story. This truth ought to be a great motivator for us as the body of Christ. Amen? A motivator for us to be vigilant, to be wide awake, to be filled up with the Holy Spirit, to be armored up, ready to do battle so that we can walk in victory even in the midst of Satan's great wrath. We do not have to be afraid of Satan's great wrath because we have Jesus. That's we have victory in Jesus. Well, after this demon in Mark 9 throws his tantrum, we read in verse 21, and Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. Interesting to watch. How does Jesus, the, the demon gets all violent and dramatic in this demonic manifestation. How does Jesus respond? Eh, not impressed. He responds with absolute calm. Doesn't freak out doesn't panic or get overwhelmed, and he doesn't allow the demon to set the agenda. Instead, Jesus simply and calmly, he asks the father a question. Hey, dad, how long has this been happening to him? Did Jesus really not know how long this had been happening to him? No, Jesus knew. So, so why does Jesus bother to ask? I think there are two reasons for this. Reason number one, I believe Jesus, as he has throughout recent miracles and healings and ministering to people, Jesus wants to demonstrate compassion to the Father. He wants to demonstrate compassion to the Father. Hey, Dad, tell me. Tell me about it. Tell me your situation. What's it been like? How has this impacted you? You know, I, I doubt that this Father had ever had anyone demonstrate this kind of attention, this kind of compassion to him. But then Jesus. Reason number two for asking the question, I believe Jesus wanted to get it all out in the open and to make sure everyone understood what a tremendously powerful hold this demon had on the boy. This demon was no joke. This demon was strong powerful and had a hold on the boy that created a seemingly hopeless situation with no human solution. I'm sure that throughout this boy's life, this desperate dad did all kinds of things, trying to seek help for his boy, and none of it worked. And the demon, just like his master Satan, was there for one purpose, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Well, the desperate father he goes on to say in the second half of verse 22, he says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Interesting. The father seems unsure that Jesus can help. Why would he be unsure of this? Yeah. I mean, if the disciples of Jesus were unable to help, it is no certainty that Jesus would be able to help. And so once again, we see the impact of the actions of the disciples on the name and reputation of Jesus and how their failure impacted how others perceived Jesus. And again, church, that's something really important for us to consider, is it not? 
People are forming their perceptions about Jesus when they watch us for good and for bad. The name of Jesus is either being honored and glorified as people watch our lives or it is being dishonored as it was here with those nine disciples. Now, we, we've all got hot buttons, right? All got our buttons. You've got yours. I've got mine. Christy has hers. <laughs> and when those buttons get pushed, we tend to respond in a certain way. Well, I think it's fair to say that the word if is a hot button for Jesus. Because if communicates doubt in his ability, and it even calls into question his character. If, 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 when you say if to Jesus, it's as if you're calling him a liar. He's not a truth teller. And so Jesus responds to the if of this father by answering in verse 23. Listen to how Jesus responds to his button getting pushed. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Now, we have to be careful here for two reasons. Listen carefully. Number one, we have to be careful because this verse has been used as a proof text by those in the, kind of that name it, claim it, prosperity type theology. Um, but as we consider the whole counsel of God and we look at Scripture in context, that kind of name it, claim it thinking based upon this verse, hey, all you got to do is believe and it'll happen, that's faulty thinking. That's not, what, that's not what the Scriptures as a whole in context teach. Reason number two that we have to be careful here is we could walk away thinking that the emphasis here is on the quality, degree, or measure of one's faith. I don't, I don't believe that that's what the emphasis is here. Amen. That the quality, degree, or measure of our faith is the key to spiritual power. But that is not the case. Listen carefully. How do I know this? Because at the end of Matthew's account of the story, he includes these words. Matthew includes that little tag which says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible before, for you. You know the story. How big is a mustard seed? exceedingly small. In fact, it was the smallest seed used in agriculture in that day. That's why Jesus chose to say, if you have faith even that small, even that small kind of faith, as small as a mustard seed, is effectual when Jesus is the object. Amen. All right, you get that? Why is it effectual? because it has Jesus as its object. And so, here's the summary statement for that. The emphasis here is not on the quality, degree, or measure of one's faith, but rather on the object of one's faith, which is Jesus. This is not to say that faith is unimportant. Our Bible tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. It says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight, but as in all of these things, the emphasis is never to be on us. The emphasis is on Jesus. Spiritual victory is up to Him and not up to us. Our job is to do this, to admit that it is up to Him and to put it in His hands. To admit that spiritual victory is up to Him and to put it in His hands, even with our imperfect mustard seed size faith. And that's what the Father has here. Don't miss this. Watch what the Father says in verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, 
Help my unbelief. I think it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It's so raw. It's so honest. And also so telling. What does it tell us about the Father? It tells us that his faith is small, like that of a mustard seed. But clearly, there is an object of his faith. What is the object of his faith? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. And as the Father exercises his imperfect mustard seed-sized faith, he is putting his Son in the hands of Jesus. And when that happens, all things are possible, not because of his faith, but because of the object of his faith, which was Jesus. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, I love how matter of fact it is, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. What a beautiful scene that must have been. A spiritual captive set free. A father reunited with his son. A boy now able to grow up and fulfill his God-given potential. And able to pursue the abundant life that God intends for all of his children That is what Jesus accomplished in setting this boy free. It's the work that Jesus did in the boy, and it's the work that Jesus wants to do in you. For Jesus said in John 10.10, look at the contrast. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Church, don't settle for less than the abundant life that Jesus intends for you. If you're not experiencing the abundant life that only Jesus can bring, it begins by exercising imperfect mustard seed faith by putting your life in his hands, just as the father did with his son. So that is the failure. That is the success. Some questions for Jesus, especially in light of their past success. Don't forget, these guys had been demon casting out rock stars at one point. But they're wondering, why why didn't it work this time? Why didn't it happen? Which brings us to the third and the final section of the text, which is the explanation. Look with me at verse 28. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Now, I don't want to read too much into this, but I think the word choice of the disciples gives us an important clue about their mindset. What is their mindset? Why could we not cast it out? I think it's quite possible that we speaks of an attitude of self-reliance on the part of the disciples. And as we know from John chapter 15, verse 5, such an attitude of self-reliance dooms us to failure. Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are merely branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can't do anything. It would appear that the disciples attempted to deliver the boy apart from Jesus 
in their own strength and their own power, which, as they so painfully discovered, was completely and totally inadequate. And so Jesus says in verse 29, and he said to them, this kind. Now let's stop there. What does he mean by this kind? When Jesus said this kind, I think he could be referring to one of two things. Number one, this kind could refer to demons in general, for demons certainly are of a different kind than humankind. They are more powerful than we are and must be dealt with in a certain way. So it could refer to demons in general. Or number two, this kind could refer to a certain kind of demon. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, that passage about the armor of God and spiritual warfare, it seems to indicate that there may be ranks of demons, right? It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, could refer to ranks, delineation of types of demons. Either way, the nine disciples on their own were in over their head and failed miserably. And so, Jesus goes on to say in his explanation in the second half of verse 29, he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Boom. There it is. Prayer. That was the missing element for the disciples. It was the missing element that led to their failure. For you see, when we pray, two things happen. We confess our helplessness, and we depend on God's omnipotence. Let me say that again. When we pray, we confess our helplessness, and we depend on God's omnipotence. So when the disciples failed to pray, they trusted in their own self-sufficiency, and they did not depend on God's sufficiency. When the disciples failed to pray, they were being self-dependent rather than God-dependent, thinking that in their own ability, they could do what they had always done. But they had to learn the hard way that this was not the case. Truly, without Jesus, without prayer, they could do nothing, and church, neither can we. Amen. I saw a quote this week. I thought it was interesting. It says, you know, it, it's not that we don't pray because we're undisciplined. We don't pray because we don't really think we need to. So there's the failure, the success, the explanation. There's an interesting summary statement to this scene which says this. He found disputing scribes, a distracted father, a demon-possessed boy, and defeated disciples. He silenced the scribes. He comforted the father. He healed the boy. And he instructed the disciples. Amen. Isn't Jesus awesome? Yes. Reaffirming that truth from earlier, which says, when Christ is absent, there is chaos, but when Christ is present, there is calm. Let's shift now to application, ask our question, how should we then live? Briefly, four things. Number one, go up. Go up. Now, what does that mean? Where exactly am I supposed to go up? Go up the Mount of Transfiguration. And what I mean by that is to that place of quietness and solitude to be with Jesus and to see his glory, whatever that looks like in your life, whatever it could and should look like in your life, spending unhurried time in the presence of Jesus, soak it all in and be filled with his spirit to overflowing 
As Jesus in the story of Mary and Martha said, one thing is necessary. I love the simplicity of that. One thing that is necessary. And what he meant by one thing is to sit in the presence of Jesus, to be with him. All other things are to flow out of this one thing. So go up the mountain, whatever that looks like for you. Spending unhurried time soaking in the presence of Jesus. But don't stay there. (laughs) Don't stay there. For the truth of the matter is you are meant to come down. You are meant to come down. In so many ways, it would be nice just to stay up there on the mountain, wouldn't it? And sit with Jesus. Just sit, sit, sit all day long. That's what Peter wanted to do when he wanted to build those shelters for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Let's just hang out up here at the mountaintop. But Jesus said no. Because God's purpose for our lives is that we come down the mountain into the valley, into the chaos, bringing Jesus' presence with us to be salt and to be light, to spread the good news of the gospel, and to set spiritual captives free. You know, it's interesting, Jesus himself came down the mountain, didn't he, in a sense? He came down from heaven to engage the mess of the world. And so must we. We must come down from the mountain after we have spent large and crazy amounts of time soaking in the presence of Jesus. And so it is probably true that some of you need to give more attention to going up the mountain to be with Jesus. That that might be the place where some of you are this morning. You need to do this, to give unhurried time to that one thing that is necessary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, soaking in His presence. But on the other hand, some of you need to give more attention to coming down the mountain to be in the world, to engage in the mess to be uncomfortable, to be stretched, and to be used for God's mighty purposes. I, I, I love the quote, a ship in harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for, right? Church, you are not built to stay in the harbor, Amen. to stay where it is safe, to stay, stay where it is comfortable. You are built to sail, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, to sail into the mess of the world and to bring his presence. So I wonder, which one are you? Are you one that needs to give more attention to being on the mountain with Jesus? Or are you one that needs to give more attention to coming down from the mountain to be in the world? Both are essential to being a fully formed follower of Jesus Christ and fulfilling his purpose for your life. Number three, plug in. Plug in. This is where things started to fall apart for the disciples. You see, they attempted to deliver the demonized boy without being plugged in to Jesus, the power source. And they were exposed for being helpless and powerless, just like we are. The disciples had forgotten that truth of John 15, 5, that apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the disciples learned the hard way in Mark 9. Many of us have learned the hard way, or we are learning the hard way through failure, through living powerless lives. But church, it doesn't have to be that way. We can learn the lesson now. God has provided all of the power we need to walk in victory and to lead others to victory. All we must do, as simple as it sounds, but as profound as it is, is to plug into the power source to Jesus, the omnipotent one who created the universe and holds it all together. We have the opportunity, the privilege of plugging into him 
And the way that we plug in is how? By prayer. Amen. By prayer. Prayer is the means by which we plug into Jesus. But again, I fear that far too many of us are like those nine disciples who said, ah, we'll endeavor to do it ourselves. And then we wonder why things didn't go famously. You remember that when we pray, we confess our helplessness and we depend on God's omnipotence. And that puts us in the prime position of the fourth point of application, which is to transmit out. So go up, come down, plug in, transmit out. You see, God's power is not meant to just be stored up in us like a battery. Rather, it is to flow through us like a conduit to the world in need. We are to be those holy power lines through which the omnipotence of God Almighty travels and transforms. Because remember, we have no power in ourselves. We're just branches. Jesus is the vine. He is the power source. We're just power lines. But as Jesus said in our passage today, all things are possible for one who believes. And the way that we exercise this kind of belief, this kind of dependence, is through prayer, where we confess our helplessness and we depend on God's omnipotence. Now, church, as we bring things to a close, here's my concern. There seems to be a power outage in the contemporary American church. I fear that in so many ways we are like those nine disciples, scratching our heads and wondering, why couldn't we do it? Why couldn't we make a greater impact in our community? Why couldn't we heal the sick and set spiritual captives free? Why couldn't we move mountains of all kinds? And the reason, of course, is that we can't do it. Though it is quite possible that we have been attempting to do it. The truth of the matter is that only Jesus, the powerful object of our faith, only He can do those things. And so, how should we then live? We are to go up, we are to come down, we are to plug in, we are to transmit out. Let me close with this quote from commentator Daniel Aiken. kind of puts a punctuation mark on this. It says, I can do nothing that really matters without Him, but this drives me continually to Him for help. I need to let my weakness drive me to his strength. I need to let my impotence drive me to his omnipotence. I need to let my limitations drive me to his unlimited resources. I need to let my humility drive me to his sufficiency. Do you bow your heads with me as we pray? God, forgive us, forgive me for operating in fleshly perceived self-sufficiency and then again wondering why isn't this working? God, we are far more weak than we realize but you are far stronger than we realize. And so for each one of us today in whichever way that you've laid it on our hearts, God, would you Bring us to that place of desperate helplessness where we must pray. We must be plugged into Jesus, the power source. And then God, together, may we see the fruit of such prayer, the fruit of such faith, the fruit of such dependence. God, we cry out to you for this church and all who proclaim the truth of the Bible to be churches that are powerful churches. That we don't just go through the motions, but God, 
the power of your spirit is radically transforming and changing lives and setting captives free. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.